That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Hi, Phil Swift here for New Flex Super Glue. What's truly amazing is that our Flex Super Glue is so strong that just one drop virtually welds itself to the surface and can lift over three tons. Forget those old super glues, get the one that's new. Flex Super Glue. Go to flexsealproducts.com forward slash three ton lift to learn more about how one drop lifted three tons. For demonstration purposes only. Hi, friends. Welcome back. Another episode coming your way on the New Evangelicals podcast. This is one of my favorite guests to have on the show. I've had him now twice on the show. This is Dr. David Gushy, and he has a new book coming out called Introducing Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today. Now, the thing that makes this very important, friends, is that Dr. Gushy wrote the book on Christian ethics that many colleges still use today, and it's actually in its, in its second edition. Dr. Gushy kind of had a uh, I don't think you would call it deconstruction moment, but he kind of started rethinking things on his own. He became affirming and he really started becoming one of the leading voices in a lot of more progressive spaces. And he wrote a book and he came on the, the show to talk about it. And this was a great interview because we kind of dived into different topics um, that, that the book covers and make no mistake. This book covers everything. All right. Sexual ethics, um, uh, political ethics, uh, war um, politics, pastoral ministry, all that stuff. So it was great having him on. I think you'll really enjoy the podcast. Um, that being said, thanks for being here as always. And thank you for just being a part of the community. It means a lot to know that you share our stuff. It helps us to share our stuff. So if you can share our content, if you can like, and subscribe our pod to our podcast, that'd be a huge help. If you want to donate to the podcast, you can do that by clicking on the link in the show notes below. It helps us directly. It impacts the work that we do. Um, we are currently in the middle of, of trying to fundraise to cover um, my salary, to cover our expenses, and to also plan for future projects. One thing we're working on is a therapist network where people can look at our website and see licensed therapists in their state and hopefully get help for an affordable cost. So we're working on that and your funding goes to making all that happen. So thank you to everyone who has donated. And if you want to donate, like I said earlier, you can click on the link in the show notes. All right, friends, here's my interview with David Gushy. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Dr. Gushy, this is the third time you and I have talked, and this is the second time you've been on this podcast. So thank you for being kind of a regular now uh, with me and having these conversations. And thanks for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. I, I'd like a, a mug. If you could just send me a New Evangelicals mug, then, then I, could, I could feel like I'm official, you know, part of the team. I have a mug. I will send you a mug. Say no more. So <laughs> all right, all right. I, I will make that happen for you. So 
<laughs> so, um, so we're, we're not going to dive too deep into your backstory because we covered that pretty extensively on the last podcast. So our listeners can go back and take a look and, and listen to that one. And we also talked about your previous book, After Evangelicalism, which really, for a lot of people, including myself, was really a breath of fresh air that that there is hope for us who maybe are leaving um, our American um, white conservative evangelical spaces and, 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 that, and that we can still find um, Jesus, in fact, maybe even a more genuine version of Jesus on the other side of that. So I know you wrote that book. It's a great book. And again, we talked about that on the other podcast, so we're not going to go too deep into it. However, you are here to talk about a new book called Introducing Christian Ethics. Is that connected? Is this kind of like like um, a follow-up to after evangelicalism for you? I would say yes and no. Um, before I started uh, writing about evangelicalism, I never knew I would ever write about evangelicalism. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian ethicist. I'm mm-hmm. trained. I'm trained in this particular discipline that tries to help Christians figure out how we should live, right? Yeah. Um, I, have, I have my PhD in it, and I once envisioned a quiet life of writing uh, articles and books about Christian ethics, you know? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then um, I got involved in the collapse of white American evangelicalism and in analyzing what went wrong with it. Yeah. Um, in a, in a sense, this book is not about that at all. But in a sense, if if there are kind of post evangelicals or heaven forbid, deconstructing people, um, yeah. we're trying to figure out what do I believe morally. If I'm not sure, I believe anything those people told me back at church. Yeah. Uh, what do I believe in the moral arena? Right and wrong, good and bad, uh, abortion, war, marriage, sex, violence virtue and how do i know anything now in this arena in a mm. sense that's how it that's how it connects mm. right yeah um but at a broader level this is my um last i think major effort to offer a synthesis of what i believe about christian ethics as a discipline and how christians should live in the moral arena of life hmm Okay, I like that. I think it's also important for the audience to recognize, too, that you are a very distinguished person in the world of academia. I mean, you've been on all kinds of boards. You were elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and Society of Christian Ethics, um, all kinds of things. You've been a professor for a long time. You've written over or co-authored over 25 books. So you're you're, you're, you're not um, a newbie, right, coming into this arena like, hey, guys, I've had this thought one day, and here's my view of Christian ethics. You really have established yourself over time, including writing a book, I think it's called Christian Ethics, for academic uh, purposes. Is, is that correct? Yeah, the book was Kingdom Ethics. Yes, yes. Um, that's how most people knew my name before I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, which was the book about LGBT inclusion. Yeah. And um, so that Kingdom Ethics book was written with my teacher, Glenn Stassen, and uh, it was used and still is used. Uh, it's in a second edition now as like the Christian ethics textbook in schools, colleges, and seminaries all over the world. It's in like 12 languages, Mm. 40,000 copies, or at least 50,000. So this book, this new book, which I'm waving on the screen here, this is the print, the first uh, copy uh, that I, it's not officially out for people yet, but it will be soon. Um, So this new book called Introducing Christian Ethics is kind of a step beyond Kingdom Ethics. It's my 
reflecting on kingdom ethics and everything else I've learned in the field of Christian ethics over 30 years, you know, so yeah, I'm not just a guy with an opinion though, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, 30, 30 years of, uh, of teaching and writing and activism also in the field of Christian ethics. So that's yeah. what that's what it is. Yeah. And I know that again, based on our last conversation, even even our first one ever on my old podcast, I know that that you really lost a lot when you wrote Changing Our Minds. So I guess you have now what uh the Gospel Coalition calls street cred with us. You know, now now you're totally in the cool kids club because you've lost everything like so many of us. So congratulations. <laughs> I know that I know that that's what you were aiming to do, just to lose everything. Yeah, um, that was the goal <laughs> to lose my entire audience uh, yeah. and to get street cred. Really <laughs> so, yeah, it was a plot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. the young affected people that was my goal yes yes well you certainly have it now um oh, by the way, i'm now gonna say uh for sure that was irony that because what i noticed is that conservative people who listen or read stuff they don't seem to have much of a sense of irony paradox or sarcasm so in case somebody would now start quoting me, Gushy admits he did all of this for street cred, okay? <laughs> that is a joke. Okay. So now we can continue with our conversation. Yes, thank you for the disclaimer. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, great. So I want to dive into this book a little bit. Um, I, I, I guess one of my first questions is, why this book now? Like, like what, what were you seeing that prompted you to say, you know what, I really need to kind of condense and really expound on some of these Christian ethics. Now is the time for me, for me to do it. Um, well, there was one immediate cause, and that was uh, I've left full-time seminary teaching behind. Hmm. And um, and I had one last class of students at the McAfee School of Theology at Mercer in Atlanta. And I thought I could just roll out the old notes one more time, right? Professors do that, right? You see, oh, there's that guy with his old yellow notes that he started writing 27 years ago or whatever. Uh, you know, so I could do that, but I thought, no, you know what I think I'll do to, to make this as this last class as good as it could be. I'm going to write new lectures on every topic. Hmm. Um, so I wanted everything to be really fresh and sharp in my last kind of, it's the concept of last lectures, you know, that was that idea. That was okay. the idea. In fact, initially, this was going to be called like Last Lectures in Christian Ethics or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was the idea. But but then, you know, it dovetails with the After Evangelicalism Project in this way. You might say that it's really important to me mm. not just to deconstruct things that I no longer believe or to name the things that I no longer believe, but to name the things that I most surely believe. Hmm. I mean, I believe some things. If I mean, this is a 300 plus page book, 330, 340 page book of what I believe. And the subtitle is Core Convictions for Christians Today. So right. you might say that after evangelicalism is, is, a, is the beginning of a theological restatement for me. What people like about that book is here's what I really do believe and I lay it out there. Hmm. And But now with this introducing Christian ethics, it's here's what I really do believe theologically, but mainly ethically it's you know pages and pages on what i believe what mm. i stand on beliefs i'd be willing to to live and die for mm. in all kinds of areas and so you might say if you put the two books together the constructive project is is important i'm really concerned that people in this post-evangelical space a lot of them are floundering they don't know what to believe they know what they don't believe um 
uh, hopefully, you know, in that conversation, this book contributes a lot to the moral arena. I appreciate that because I do feel like a lot of us, including myself, you know, um, are still really unsure of, of where to plant some flags. You know, I think we're kind of realizing like, whoa, if we're coming out of the basement of evangelicalism and now we're in the house of Christian thought, it's a much bigger house than I ever thought possible. What rooms do I want to say, hey, I think that these are really, you know, places that I really want to park for a bit versus, hey, I was just passing through. I appreciated it. I'm just going to kind of move on now. And, and so having a place where... Where, 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 where you can look through, I mean, I'm looking at, at your chapters, you really are naming like some of the big ones, you know, justice, love, forgiveness, caring for God's good creation, ending patriarchy once and for all, repenting of white Christian supremacism, the radical economic ethics of Jesus, preventing unwanted pregnancy and abortion, sexual ethics after the revolution. I mean, these are all really like, yes, I, I need some, I would love some input here on how to view some of these issues because they, they are some of the, you know, where the church meets the state policing crime, all of those things to us, I think, uh, are really on the table. And un unfortunately, it seems like, um, and again, I'm going to paint here with, with a broad brush. I'm sure not every evangelical leader, but the ones that we're seeing, the public ones, really don't seem to have any good answers really to any of this besides what we've already come from. And we already know those answers, you know, and, and we found them lacking. So I think a lot of us are looking for for us, new ways to, to to see these issues that are still centered on Jesus that really push human flourishing and really, I guess in a way, are kind of, it's it's a term that you coined, Christian humani uh, humanism in, in a way. Can you kind of unpack that for a minute and kind of give our audience some of that background? Um, in After Evangelicalism, I make the brief proposal that that my vision seems to be landing in a place that I decided to call Christian humanism. I did not invent that term. Uh, mm. It goes back uh, deep into the history of the church. Okay. Um, and I, I named uh, the uh, Reformation figure Erasmus uh, as where I got the inspiration for that. Um, but this is a, it's a, a phrase that is often has been used to describe the ethics of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the theology of Bonhoeffer, mm. as well as um, there are dimensions of this in Catholic social thought, uh, Catholic ethical thought, which is important to me and which is, shows up a lot in this book. Hmm. Um, and and I would say, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I use the term humanism in this new book. I probably should if I'm going to brand a, a, like a new a new brand. I should have said humanism, humanism, <laughs> humanism right? The trademark, actually, or whatever. But um, <laughs> but what it means essentially is a commitment to human flourishing because of the high declared value of human life uh, by the God who made us in his image and who redeemed us in Christ um, mm -hmm. and a urgent, an urgent effort to look for areas where human flourishing is, um, is blocked, where it is harmed. Mm -hmm. And, and you might say that, I mean, one way to summarize the Christian ethical task is to advance human flourishing and the flourishing of God's creation yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And so, and so a Christian to me is a person who wakes up each day asking, not just how can I flourish and become everything God made me to be, but how can I help others flourish? And where how do I identify areas where human flourishing is being set back by injustice and violence 
um, and discrimination and, and mistreatment and, uh, and look to a- address those problems with a vision of human flourishing. It fits with the kingdom of God vision too. I believe that Jesus's understanding of the kingdom of God was a vision of the flourishing of God's creation and all who are in it, including yeah. all persons. Yeah. Um, and so another thing about the Christian humanist vision that I think is, is reflected in this new book is any source of insight that helps us understand better, either flourishing or its lack should be drawn on. Hmm. Part of what went wrong with fundamentalism and evangelicalism was uh, a very narrow band of um, resources. Everything was about quoting the Bible. If you couldn't find it in the Bible, it wasn't relevant. Right, right. Uh, but in in the kind of thought that I'm advocating in this book, anywhere you can find truth that enables us to advance human flourishing better is something that should be considered, right? So it's more open-minded vision, uh, yeah. more, you know, we don't know everything here and, and just quoting the Bible doesn't solve everything. There's a lot of sources one must one must examine um, uh, to, to understand the world and to help to make it what God wants it to be. I really love that because number one, I've always been taught in my upbringing that, that, that the term humanism is bad, it's evil, we have to stay away from it, it's man-centered. And I like that that you're, that that you're using that terminology because I think a lot of us have found um, our upbringing lacking in the terms in terms of helping people really flourish. Besides just just telling them, "Oh, come to church, learn the Bible, go, you know, walk down the aisle a few times," but like really, what are the physical needs? What are the mental needs of of other people? How do we help um, participate in systems that promote human flourishing, not ones that really abuse? And um, and exploit. So I love all that, and I think it really hits uh, for at least for the for me, or I'm sure for the audience, it hits the nail on the head. Where it's like, yes, it's not that we don't hold the Bible sacred, or think that that certainly God has spoken through it in this weird marriage of human and divine. For sure, that's all there. But certainly, there are things that that the Bible just doesn't explicitly talk about. And I like, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I'm having a sore throat today. <clears> throat> Um, I like how uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project often puts things where how do we work with God in their wisdom to make wise decisions? And that leaves things much more flexible because morals aren't always super rigidly black and white, right? There's always some nuance to, to things based on the context. And I think a lot of us have found ourselves frustrated with the very, like you said, limited bandwidth and very rigid approach um, of what we were taught, coupled with the language of absolutism. This is the only way to be a Christian. This is the only way to love God. And so now that we're, again, kind of exploring the house, right, it is overwhelming. It's also exciting, but it's also like, oh my gosh, now that I I, 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 I see what's happening, where do I start? And I think that this book might be a great place for that. Thanks. Uh, you know, I think that Morality is a fundamental part of human life. I say in the book that every human being on the planet, if they ask this question, they're doing what I'm trying to do in the book. And that question is, how should I live? Hmm. Um, and the other subsidiary questions like, um, what are the rules that that should govern my life? And um, how do I decide what to do in this situation? Yeah. And and what does it mean to be a good person or a bad person? You know? Um or, or whatever. These are moral questions. And yeah. so Christian ethics is the discipline 
<laughs> that explores all of that, like the language of right and wrong and the, how you arrive at these judgments and, and then how, how they work themselves out in particular situations all across the lifespan. In this book, for the first time, I've, I've developed a life cycle approach. I envision my grandchildren who are now six and three. Mm. And the way that moral issues will emerge for them as they uh, as they grow, um, and the goal I would say is to provide guidance for life across the entire lifespan. Um, but but because the world is so complex, yeah. because human beings are so complex, yeah. Because we're both made in the image of God, but also damaged by sin, um, and because our ability to know what to do is always constrained by our limits and, and by the biases and perceptual problems that we have, it is always a struggle. So one of the themes of the book is that just determining what to do is often a profound struggle. There's always differences of opinion. And a lot of human history is about people arguing at the top of their voices about what is right and what is wrong, what to do and what not to do. Right. What evangelicalism tried to do, fundamentalism even more, was to say, we have the answer to everything. Cue the preacher waving the big fat Bible at the front of the stage saying, just listen to me as I tell you, the one way to know something hmm. and the one thing to do. Yeah. Um. And that was, I think, partly intended to simplify hard choices and also to help people not drown in complexity. Yeah. But, but it also reinforced the authority of that one man on the stage, right? Yes. You know? Yes. In, in real life, as, as many of you know, your listeners have long known, in real life, it's more complicated than that. Yes. So, so this is a, uh, my work is, is, in 25 chapters of 4,000 words each, it's basically, here's how I, some guideposts for thinking about this and that issue, mm. and how we get there, um, not settling things for people, but at least this is what I believe, and or at least these are the parameters of what I believe, and maybe it could be helpful for people in these different dimensions of life. Yeah, that's really great. It is, um, we were even talking before we started recording, it's been very interesting to see that same kind of fundamentalist spirit of... Um, oh, we can't accept this book because it wasn't biblical enough, meaning it, it didn't use enough verses. But then, then the author is like, well, I wasn't trying to do that. Like, I'm a historian, right? Like Kristen Dumais is a great example of this, right? She came under 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 fire from, uh, I forgot the guy's name, but it's the director, I think, at the Center for Biblical uh, Manhood and Womanhood or whatever it's called. And uh, one of the critiques was, you know, oh, like there wasn't enough Bible verses to support the claims. And she's like, I'm a historian. I'm doing historical work. Of course there's not. That isn't the point. And and just because of that, that was enough to like dismiss this really important work. And I found I found Kristen to be very transparent everywhere about her about her book, how historians are never fully, you know, non-biased. It's just part of the work that 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 they do. And seeing that in action over and over again, now more recently with um, uh, the book by Scott McKnight, who I love Scott McKnight, A Church Called Tove, and seeing the Gospel Coalition write a review kind of critiquing it again for not being biblical enough. It's like, wow, it's just so frustrating because like you said, there are just things that the Bible does not directly answer. Now, can we glean wisdom from the Bible? Of course we can. Is the Bible rich in story? Of course we can. But how we get there is not 
the Bible is not primarily a doctrine, right? It's not primarily trying to give you every, it's not a moral handbook for life primarily. It's just not. It's stories and letters and, and all that stuff. So I, I think that a book like this, I appreciate that that you're transparent where you're not trying to repeat the cycle of, oh, I found new ethics and here's the new lines for you. But it sounds like the book is more about, here are some guideposts, here are some things to consider as you move forward. Here's how maybe Christians historically have thought about this. So as you move forward, please like take the wisdom that I've learned and apply it to your situation. Is that more of, of, the, of the heart behind it? Yeah. Let me, let me start off by, um, by talking about um, the, what the Bible can contribute, but also what its limits are on some, like some issues, like take an example. Let's say you're a, a, a married couple who wants to have kids and you're not able to have kids. Yeah. Right. Uh, a conception is not working. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, the Bible does deal with situations like that. It talks about infertility. It has, you know, stories like about, uh, for example, Abraham and Sarah, right? And what options did Abraham and Sarah have when they were thinking they wanted to have a baby? Well, there was Hagar and, you know, the rest of the system, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. Uh, and then then God intervened and, and then you have all of that. Well, we have an, a new option that has existed since 1978. We have in vitro fertilization. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what does the Bible say about in vitro fertilization? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it didn't exist. Right. Okay. So does the Bible have relevant stories? It does. I think the Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, you know, Isaac stories, they're all very relevant. Do mm-hmm. they solve the do they solve the issue for a couple as to whether it's okay to go to the reproductive technology clinic and, and head down that path? They don't solve it. Mm. They, they inform it maybe mm. right um so questions of adoption uh of um of reproductive technology or end of life stuff you know um my dad died about a year ago and one of the i think the best chapters of this book is when i reflect on the decisions that people now have to make at the end of life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well we have medical means to extend life far, far longer than people had, you know, even 50 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the choices that people face at the end of life are just different. Mm -hmm. And at at one level, the Bible speaks profoundly to issues of the value of life at the end of life and how you must always treat all persons with dignity. And to ask, what does it mean to treat a dying person with dignity is always the right question, right? But, you know, do you give morphine? How much morphine do you give? For what purpose? Um, mm. do, you, do you do chemotherapy for a 90-year-old person who has a cancer diagnosis or do you don't? You know, right. um, do you not? How do you know that? It isn't because there's a quote in the book of Leviticus about that. Right, <laughs> right. right. These are um, judgments that must be made in real time by real struggling, suffering people. The Christian tradition as a whole has wisdom that I'm trying to help to bring forward to people in that situation. But there's also just very difficult choices that everybody eventually will face, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think ethics is so interesting because the tradition and the scripture always has a lot to offer, but there's there's an awful lot of decision-making we have to face in our lives. And yeah. we don't do people any favors if we tell them that it's that it's simple. 
Can I reflect on that with one of my examples that has also, it really, I think fits into this well. Um, you know, I grew up obviously evangelical, so very pro-life, so abortion should be outlawed, you know, and uh, my wife and I, we got pregnant um, a couple of years ago now. My, our son's 18 months. So, you know, we're really excited and we, we go to um, the OBGYN to do like, like the first real cons- you know consultation and kind of go through everything. And we're sitting with the nurse, and the nurse was super great. And she just kind of rattled rattled off, like, okay, so here's what we test for, here's what we look for, et cetera. And she said, we test for, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but, but we test for something that is genetic. And essentially, depending, if the baby has it in the womb, and depending on what level they have it, the chances of survival outside the womb become essentially non-existent. You know, like, I, I, if it's type three of this thing, the baby will not live outside the womb. And she said, and then you have to decide on what you want to do. And that's when it hit me like, oh, she's referring to abortion. And that was a moment for me where I said, this is more complicated because if our baby had that, we'd be faced with a very difficult decision. And I would want that decision to be, be between me, my wife, and our healthcare provider, not with the state saying, no, you can't make this decision. You have to carry it a full term, right? And that yeah. was a moment for me where I said, oh, maybe this issue of the legality of abortion, depending on the situation, really might might be different ethically depending on what's happening. <laughs> and that was a moment, a little light bulb moment for me where I'm like, well, the Bible doesn't really answer this question directly. I can't, I can't like go through my roller decks of Bible versions and say, oh, here's the answer. But also like, how do we weigh this in theory? And it never happened, thank God, the baby's totally healthy. But if we were, if the baby tested for that, how would we decide what to do? I mean, there's no good answer there. You know, either answer for us is a total heartbreak. So I think that kind of fits into what you're talking about. Um, one of the things I noticed in that story, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, uh, we've had we had plenty of drama in our childbearing years too. We, um, my wife and I, Jeannie lost two pregnancies at midterm. Mm. Um, after three healthy pregnancies, wow. something was wrong. She was still in her early thirties, but uh, we had two. With it's called fetal demise. Mm. So uh, at eighteen weeks, both times back to back. And by the way. Um, when doctors discover a fetal demise, it becomes urgent to, um, to get the dead fetus out of the body soon for the woman's health. Yeah. And, but then there's really two ways to do that. One is to induce labor and the other is, is an abortion, is an abortion technique. Hmm. So, so if, if abortion is banned and the techniques of abortion are banned, then that takes that option off the table, uh, even in that case, right? Yeah. So these are complexities that, you know, a lot of people, have, well, of course, would never have thought about. But, right. but the thing that, um, that I hear in your story, partly, is technological change creates new choices. Yes. Um, in Abraham and Sarah's day, if Sarah got pregnant, there was no genetic testing available to find out if Isaac had trisomy three or Down syndrome or something, right? Right. Whatever, whatever that baby was or wasn't, well, they were going to discover when that baby was born or not born, right? Right. Right. Um, so technological innova- innovations, including genetic testing, now create new choices, and those choices add complexity. Yeah. Um, Technological innovation affects many of the issues that that one could talk about that I talk about in the book. Uh, in the sexual ethics chapter, I talk about the technological innovation of the birth control pill and how that changed everything. Totally. 
right? Yes. Um, in in terms of um, uh, the ethics of peace and war, it's the technological innovation of more and more advanced destructive weapons. Yeah. Right. That changed the discussion of war. We've always had the issue of war since humanity began, but we've never had nuclear weapons until 1945. Right. 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 Um, at the end of life, people have always died, but they didn't always have respirators and um, feeding tubes and chemotherapy right. and morphine and all that. Right. So um, ethics involves a uh, complicated process of taking age old resources and bringing them into real life situations that have specific complexities and that change every year based on technological innovation. Yes. Right. So you guys in your generation dealing with uh, pregnancy related issues, some of your situations are going to be different than it was in my generation 20 years before uh, because uh, even of uh, advances in genetic testing and stuff that weren't available when we were coming through. Right. You know, so in ethics, you have to keep up on the technological developments that are relevant, um, mm. you know, uh, to each issue that under discussion, right? That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Mother's Day is coming. And if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry just disappointed. So go with Drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, far, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of what Scott McKnight says in his book, The Blue Parakeet. Every Christian generation has to kind of interpret the Bible for their day in their way. That's just kind of like, you know, one of his right. theses. You know, like, how do we, in light of new technology and just progression, you know, look at these ethics? So, okay, I wanted to get in maybe to, to two or three of these topics a little bit more because um, while I have you here, it's always good to pick your brain. I see, is that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer behind you, by the way? On it the is, that's okay. That's okay. right. I'm sure you're a huge fan of, you know, um, Eric Metaxas's uh, biography. I'm sure it, it's it's a big win for you. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's huge. Uh, um, it's hugely awful. So no irony here because I don't want to be misquoted. Yes, hugely awful. The worst ever. I had to throw it out there, you know. Oh yeah. my goodness. Um. So I, I I want to get your thoughts on a couple of these topics uh, that you wrote about in the book. Let's start with this one, Chapter Twenty, where church meets state. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um. I think that we're both seeing the rise of Christian nationalism. I'm not sure if you've seen the clip, um, from a church I think in California a couple months ago where they had um. General Flynn, uh, the the disgraced general who was convicted of crimes and was pardoned by Trump, um, on stage, they gave him an AR-15 uh, to a round of applause on stage at a church, the pastors did, and then he said, quote, maybe I should go down to D.C. with this, to a round of applause, okay? This is like in church. So uh -huh. I, I think we're seeing more and more this really unholy alliance of this far-right, borderline fascist, and I'm sure you would know much more about it than I would considering your studies, um, and, and the church. However, I do think that like churches and, or the church does have an obligation to be involved there in their society to help human flourishing. 
So in your opinion, how do we balance this? Because I don't want, I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again and become the very thing in a different way that I'm critiquing, but I still think that as Christians, we owe it to our fellow man to push for the advancement of all. Um, what I do in chapter 20 is, um, is to talk about the mission of the church and the mission of the state and the, the space in which they overlap and the space in which they are different. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, I've not written exactly in this way before. Um, so hopefully it'll be helpful, hmm. but, but you know, um, so the mission of the church, I say, uh, the church is a living human community. The one community in the world that commits to participating in Christ's inaugurated kingdom. Our mission is to proclaim and embody the kingdom of God inaugurated in Jesus. We do this by offering loving service to our neighbors, creating cultural expressions, and speaking to political authorities and the public about the values of the kingdom. Um, so the mission of the church is to advance the kingdom of God and to embody its values. And that does involve um, measured political activity. Hmm. Um, the mission of the state, according to Romans 13, uh, which is only one place, but an important one, is essentially to deter and prevent um, evil that would threaten political community. Hmm. Uh, so crime, for example, hmm. um, and a foreign invasion. And also a little bit more broadly to advance the common good and the well-being of the citizenry. Right? Mm. Um, so where the mission of the church and the mission of the state overlap is in when we say we want to advance the kingdom and the state says we want to advance the common good, there can mm. be some overlap there. Mm. Right. So they're doing their thing. We're doing our thing. We're encouraging them to do their thing. Right. Um, but in a, in a democratic vision, which I have, I'm actually writing about that right now. That's what I was doing before you, uh, you and I started talking. I'm writing about the threat to democracy on the Christian right around the world and in mm. the U.S. Mm. Um, um, but in a democracy, and in a in a democracy with respect for human rights, we understand what Christians are advocating for is not a Christian state, but just a state that does its limited responsibility well. Mm. Okay? So protect people from crime and invasion, advance the common good in the areas of like uh, education and roads and things like that, right? Healthcare. <laughs> right. Uh, give us roads and clean drinking water and, and food that is safe to eat and uh, a clean environment and things like that. But we're not asking the state to become officially Christian or to advance the evangelism of the world, right? Yes, right. Um, Hard stop. So <laughs> right. So therefore, we don't need a Christian state. Um, but the state should not be asking Christians to, or no party should be asking Christians to offer a loyalty to a party, a person, or a government that only belongs to Jesus. Hmm. So what is being called Christian nationalism today is yep. essentially a right-wing movement around the world in which conservative Christians are allying with conservative parties 
often to undermine democracy in order to advance the kind of an explicitly Christian moral vision of a right-wing type. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll give, the state says to the Christians, we'll give you uh, bans on abortion and attacks on gay people and so on if you give us your uncritical support. Mm. Um, and we'll give you a hyper-nationalist, and now you can add race to it, I mean, especially in the U.S., but some other countries too. Part of this vision is we'll give you ethno-Christian nationalism. Mm. We'll give you um, a white racist thing, somehow connect that to the state and connect that to Christianity. We'll give you that too, if that's what you want. You just give us your uncritical support. And if we undercut democracy in the meantime, you should be okay with that too. To me, uh, figures like General Flynn are, are right in that world of uh, seething with violence, contempt for pluralism, contempt for democracy if it doesn't give us exactly what we want, and a conservative Christianity, all part of that. It's a, tox- a toxicity that is very dangerous right now. I'm writing about something similar in Russia, Poland, Hungary, Brazil, and the U.S., all of them. It's the wow. 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 Well, I just um, I read the book a few months ago, How Fascism Works. Um, man. Oh, I mean, for me, being a layperson, it was just like this. If this isn't like like Trump all the way through and through, I don't know what is. Um, it, it was really eye opening because you know you hear these terms a lot. Oh, communism, Marxism, fascism. Okay, well, what are these terms? And that book really just kind of unpacks it in very simple ways and very clear ways. Um, and I think you really hit the nail on the head with so many things that you said. And it's a great distinction because you're right. I, it seems like many evangelicals, many conservative Christians are really convinced that 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 Trump is or was and will come back one day and be like, you know, this person who is bringing God back to America. But a lot of people that I engage with on the more progressive side, we don't have that same allegiance to Joe Biden. Like, okay, yes, I voted for Biden, but I've also critiqued Biden like several times, the drone strikes, his immigration policies. And there's there just there just seems to be a big difference of almost like this um I'm not sure what the right word is. I'm sure you have it, but this propping up of one person to fix all of our problems versus, yeah, maybe I voted for this guy, but like there's still many problems and he's not answering a lot of them and I'm still not content with the work he's doing. And I'm not, I'll put it this way. I'm never going to have a Joe Biden flag on the back of my pickup truck, you know, waving (laughs) around, right? Like Biden's my guy. But we see that, especially with white evangelicals, we know that 80% of them voted for Trump in 2016 and in 2020. So whatever he did in 20 for, you know, through 2016 to 2020 really had no bearing on, on how evangelicals saw him. Uh, and it's, it's, it's frustrating. And frankly, it's scary. Cause I think my hunch, I would love your wisdom here is that things in America, maybe globally are going to get worse and perhaps even more violent with these Christian nationalists that before they get any better. Um, I don't know how things are going to go. I do know what the I do know what the trends look like in these countries. Um, uh, it's, it's a conservative reaction against pluralism of belief, uh, race, and values. Hmm. And um, Christians are lining up on the reactionary side, and some of them are proving susceptible to violence. And to me, that's partly what January sixth was about. And yeah. one one. Um, characteristic of a democracy, a real democratic order, is it's never about individuals. 
Um, like, hmm. like one reason you have term limits in most roles, like the presidency, is so that it never becomes about one person. Hmm. Uh, in a democracy, the people rule by electing representative leaders and then rotating them regularly through free and fair elections. Hmm. And so um, you always remember that it's about not one person or one family, but about the people as a whole. And you're regularly shuffling people in and out so that nobody ever gets to consolidate too much power. Hmm. Um, in a fascist or authoritarian regime, um, political power tends to get centralized in a party, a person, uh, or a family. Hmm. Mm. And um, when that begins to happen, you are losing uh, democracy or democracy is at risk. Mm. I mean, one could one could imagine a situation where Trump gets reelected uh, fair or unfair election and manages um, to consolidate power such that uh, the next president is Donald Trump Jr. And the next president after that is Ivanka Trump. And the next president after that is, you know, mm. in other words, it's a family dictatorship. That's what happened like in the Philippines. Uh, You know, it happens in the worst autocracies. Mm. Um, So um, democracy, I'm saying, needs to be, the the case for democracy needs to be defended right now against people who are not so sure they want to play by its rules anymore. Right. And anyway, so that's what I'm doing at, at length in my next project. But in this book, I basically make the more limited case that the church needs to be clear about what its mission is. Yeah. That does not involve inviting people, giving them AR-15s and having them make political threats uh, on the duly elected, you know, leadership of the country. It does not involve that. That's I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that's a, a radicalization that I find extraordinarily alarming right now. Yeah, no, I agree. And even though I know that statistically it's not the quote unquote majority, it's certainly a growing minority. Um, and, you know, what I always tell people is my hunch is that. Um, if there wasn't white evangelicalism in bed with with Trump, we wouldn't have had an insurrection. We wouldn't have had QAnon spreading the way that it was. You know, they really have become conduits for things that I think are dangerous. So, um, I wanted to ask this. This is kind of this is going to get us into um, the the second topic I wanted to pick your brain on before we, we we let you go here. And again, thanks for coming on and being part of the conversation. Right. I, I'm excited to read this book. I'm really looking forward to it. So, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, did you do your uh, uh, a dissertation on the Holocaust? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you obviously know what you're talking about there, and I find it um, interesting to see people, uh, you know, comparing everything to Nazi Germany, vaccine mandates, Nazi Germany. It's kind of drive you up a wall. Um, how has your knowledge of the the Holocaust and your study influenced some of these topics, like where church meets state or um, sacred violence and nonviolence? I would love to kind of get your thoughts on that, and then transition in, into chapter twenty two. Sure. Um- well, the Nazi regime turned out to be one of the top three worst regimes in history. Mm, wow. <laughs> so, um, wow. Uh, and it's been a long history. Human beings have been on this planet a long time. So, yeah. and the, the amount of concentrated destruction and evil done by that party, that regime in 12 years is something to behold, right? Mm. I think uh, you can attribute... I don't know, at, at least 50 million deaths to the Nazi uh, to wow. Nazi responsibility in 12 years, at least, wow. um, with genocide and launching World War II. Um, so not everything should be compared to the Nazi regime. 
Can you hold that thought for one second? I'm starting to interrupt you. My computer's not charging. Let me fix it, and I'll I'll pick you right back up. Give me one second. It's about to die. Sorry about that. Sure. Sorry about that. I'm going to write down this timestamp. I'll have my producer edit this part out. I hate to cut you off in the middle of that conversation, but I was real close. Uh, Timestamp, 43 minutes. Okay, cool. Okay. Okay. Yep, go ahead. So not everything should be compared to the Nazi regime. Um, In fact, uh, I make such comparisons very reluctantly um, Mm. because of how much is at stake when you do, right? Um, Yes, yes, exactly. um, but, But, I mean... Obviously, I've been affected by studying that period and that that regime as much as I have. It, it definitely has contributed to my overall ethic of human flourishing, of the dignity and worth of every life, hmm. um, of the dangers of racism, of the dangers of militarism. Hmm. Um, uh, basically, the Nazi regime in its is kind of ultra nationalist, ultra militarist, ultra racist, ultra aggressive ultra-colonialist kind of way um, Mm. embodied some of the worst tendencies in politics and then had absolutely no moral scruples whatsoever in carrying out what they dreamed up. Mm. They were were attempting to remake the world and they thought they were going to have a thousand years to do it. They had 12 uh, Mm. because they were opposed all around the world. Yeah. But, um, But they did so much destruction and so there's a lot of lessons there about the need for moral limits, uh, about moral rules, and about what happens when politics really gets toxic. By the way, that's one reason why we are not free to disengage from politics and say that's just messy business. That's somebody else's problem. Mm. Because when politics really gets toxic, a lot of people die. Wow, that's good. So never forget that, listeners. When politics really gets toxic, a lot of people die. When mm. politics gets a little bit toxic, a lot of people's needs are not met. Because basic problems don't get solved, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, but when when politics gets evil, yeah, lots of people die because the state has all the guns, all the hmm. power, um, and the bureaucracy and the ability to do a great amount of harm in a very short period of time. Hmm. That's good. Um, let's let's uh, end on this one: sacred violence and nonviolence, the ethics of peace and war. And I think that the uh, you know, I, Hitler's always kind of like the go-to, right? Like, I think for me as a Christian, I'm really exploring more nonviolence um, ways of being and and trying to advocate for that. However, we all can look back to World War II and say, okay, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with Hitler? What are some of, of, of the guideposts you give us in chapter 22 for, for talking about what you call sacred violence and nonviolence, the ethics of peace and war? Um, that chapter... By the way, I'm glad you're asking chapter questions because those are those are I like to dive in a little bit deeper. Um, Good. Uh, if you ever want to do a follow up on some other chapters, we could do it. So just right. to end here today, um, the tradition of Christianity, uh, even though it came out of uh, uh, Judaism, which did have in the Old Testament uh, plenty of violence, um, by the first century there were uh, traditions um, that were essentially pacifist. Uh, we are going to die for Yahweh, but we're not going to kill for Yahweh. Hmm. If Jesus reflected that kind of spirit. Um, there is no evidence that Jesus ever endorsed uh, or undertook any form of violence. Um, and 
under the powerful impact of his example, the earliest Christians appear to have been pacifists. They were committed to nonviolence. Hmm. They died for him, but they would not kill for him. Hmm. And so this chapter talks about a trajectory of thought in Christian tradition that began with a, a sacred nonviolence. Because of the sacred image of Jesus and what he did, we will never kill. We're willing to die for Jesus. We're not scared, but we're not going to kill for anybody. Hmm. Gradually, by the fourth century, a little with some indications before that, some Christians began to believe that there might be reasons why violence might be necessary. Um, and especially when the church uh, got married to the Roman Empire um, with the conversion of Constantine and the establishment of Christianity, um, eventually the church's majority position was that sometimes violence is appropriate as a last resort to defend the innocent. Hmm. So that becomes the basis of the just war theory. Um, gradually, this little sliver uh, becomes a wide open door and, hmm. and it gets worse when the, when the church begins to endorse violence for all kinds of reasons, including the suppression of heresy and yeah. the enforcement of orthodoxy. Right. Um, and, and then with the Crusades, you have an entire, essentially, Christian Europe going after Muslims in the Holy Land um, uh, to regain Jerusalem and all of that. And so, so I talk about a third tradition of holy war in which literally people are killing in the name of God, believing they're doing so with God's blessing, with a great deal of uh, excitement about, about killing the infidel. Mm. So that's sacred violence. So we've moved from sacred nonviolence to sacred violence. Mm. And that's within one tradition over about a thousand year period. Yeah. And so a thousand years later, I argued that we're still kind of in a similar conversation. You've still got people of Jesus. You've still got Christian pacifists making a strong case that no Christian should ever kill anybody. Hmm. You've still got just war people saying, well, maybe not never, but occasionally we might need to kill to defend the innocent. Hmm. And you know what I think what we saw on January 6th? was a resurgence of the mm. violence in the name of Jesus tradition. Mm. Um, not everybody there, but some with their Christian flags and stuff, they were <laughs> they were ready to hang Mike Pence in the name of Jesus, right? Yes, they were. Um, and so that is uh, the crusade tradition alive and well. Mm. And so I argue in the chapter that sacred violence is extraordinarily dangerous, but it is part of our tradition. We need to name that and repent it and at least restrict ourselves to very limited defensive violence, but but still take very seriously also the pacifist tradition with which we started. I love that because I think it's important that we are able to acknowledge that that people can use Christian thought and the Bible to weaponize it for violence. That is a, a valid Christian tradition. Now, we don't think it's valid, but it is one that people could use. And I, I, the reason why I think that's important is because something I see a lot that people do is they're quick to say, oh, that's not a true Christian. I mean, that, that's what people did with the insurrection. I've interviewed pastors on the podcast who said, oh, well, they weren't real Christians. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure these are church going. Some of them are church going. You know, I prayed the prayer, forgiveness of sins, you know, Christian, and they can still make a way to justify, you know, um, a, a prayer in the Capitol building to Jesus, thanking him for this opportunity to inflict violence. And I think that's important because we have to, I think it's important to recognize that 
that that the Bible, the Christian tradition can be weaponized to do really harmful things and people can get there with their theology. I mean, just a couple hundred years ago, we, we, uh, Christians, right, were using the Bible to make the case that black Americans were less than human and they had all their Bible verses and their theology all worked out. It was really weaponized. So I appreciate you saying that, you know, hey, this is a, a, a Christian tradition. I'm not, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that, that it's good or healthy or or even faithful in a lot of ways. But it is one that we have to be on the lookout for, and that the instruction kind of was maybe one of those moments where, yep, it's still here, it's still alive and well. Yeah, um, it's a really good case study, and I, I wouldn't call it a valid Christian tradition, but I would say it is a Christian tradition. Hmm. A valid, that is, I believe it does not fit with. The example of Jesus or the majority of uh, the best of Christian thought in our tradition, right? Yeah. But it is a tradition, just like sexism is a tradition, just like anti-Semitism is a Christian tradition, right? Yes, yes. Um, so um, historical knowledge is indispensable for thinking clearly about everything in the world, including our tradition, mm. right? Yeah. And um, when we recognize these aberrant, not good aspects of our tradition, then maybe we're in a little bit of a better position to defend against them when we see them, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and there are biblical roots to the Holy War tradition, basically the Holy War passages of the Hebrew Bible, right? Yeah. But some people also go to the book of Revelation, the, the, you know, the imagery of the bloody warrior Jesus at the end, right? Right, right. Um, so, so you have... For sacred violence, you have both scripture and tradition available to be mobilized. Yes. So it has to be countered by better, you might say, better readings of scripture and better aspects of tradition. Yeah. And that is a lot of the work of Christian ethics, but it's also what good church leaders should be doing. Hmm. It's their job to train their people in healthy versions of Christianity so we become constructive followers of Jesus that make the world better rather than worse. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's what so many of us um, have found lacking. I think in in this in this moment in history for us, you know, we I've seen the pop pastors, the popular pastors, uh, talking about critical race theory, talking about Marxism, everything but you know Christian nationalism and and the violence that we're seeing, and uh, you know QAnon conspiracies breeding um, it really in in a lot of church circles. I mean, I, I I've read that there's a book by written by QAnon like followers called um, The Great Awakening, and it, it really is unreadable. It's just like like like, like their four chan posts in the book. But I'll tell you what, man, there's a lot of Christian language in that book. There are Bible verses. There's Christian language. They they make the case from a specific. Christian point of view, um, and so I, I, you know, he not hearing, not not seeing major leaders who really influence people. I'm talking people I don't even agree with, like Franklin Graham, for example, has a huge following. Not address what is so obviously happening inside church circles. It is it's frustrating, you know. It's really frustrating to see, and um, I'm hoping that books like this and and as you know, people in these different kinds of movements, Christian humanism, and well, however or whatever that we, we call them, how they start to form new ethics, I think will be so important because I think one thing that I hear a lot is people ask me, Tim, what do we want to be known for though? Like, okay, I get it, I get what we're against, I get what, what we don't like, but what do we we want to be known for? I think it's an important question that we have to start wrestling through as we start to form some of these in in a way new ethics, quote unquote. Um, you know, there's a chapter in the book that I call uh, 
the moral responsibilities of Christian ministers. Mm. Let me see. That's what I call it. It's the next to last chapter. Yep, the, moral the moral dimension of the ministerial vocation. And, yep, yep. and one of the things I say there is that it is absolutely the, the case that Christian ministers have moral responsibilities to, to, um, to teach their people a version of Christianity that advances the kingdom rather than sets it back and that, that, that follows Jesus rather than doesn't. And of course, we're, we'll argue about what that looks like forever until Jesus comes back. Right. <laughs> right. But um, I think that we have both a lot of, I mean, I think, un, let's call it undisciplined, culturally reactionary crap that is that is somehow being preached on Sunday mornings by people who supposedly a lot of them got a theological education. <laughs> right. Right. But, but man, they're offering cultural schlock based on anger and whatever is on, on Fox news the night before. Totally. Um, that is not okay. Yeah. Um, but I would also say to the left, if all you're offering is a lot of anger and whatever you saw on MSNBC the night before, that's not good enough either. Mm. We have a, a theological and moral tradition of great heft, in some cases, majesty, yeah. Um, and, and a lot of responsibility that we have is our main responsibility is to teach it to our people so that they become better followers of Jesus. Yeah. And that's what I hope this book helps, helps everybody to do, you know, and that's what I hope all of my work does. I love that. And my encouragement to you and to all the people really in academic you know, ways and, and the scholars out there such as yourself is that we need people like you more than ever to do that work because a lot of us are hungry for it. I I eat up Bible Project, you know, and their theology. I love Christine Dumais' work on, on Jesus and John Wayne. I love Beth Allison Barr's stuff, Jamar Tisby's stuff, Esau McCauley's stuff. It's so important because it really helps us open new doors inside the Christian tradition that make us think in I would argue way more beautiful, way more critical ways of being as someone who wants to follow Jesus. And that's an important part of what we do. I mean, our mission statement is we're centered on Jesus, driven by our stories, committed to pushing the church forward together. Like centered on Jesus is what we are here to do. Um, and so I think that the work you're doing is important. Please keep going. Um, when does the book come out? Um, introducing Christian Ethics is supposed to be uh, able to be ordered by January 4th. Excellent. Yeah. I'm excited to get myself a copy of the book. And I think we should definitely talk again, maybe do a part two and dive into some more of these topics because I think that um, this book, I think, has the potential to be a really great map for a lot of us who have been looking, have been feeling our way in the dark for so long. <laughs> Having a light might be great to have here. So uh, I would love to, to do that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. All right, great. Well, I'll email you after this and we'll get it going. But again, thanks again, uh, Dr. Gushy, for coming on. Can people are, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook, Instagram? Where can, where can uh, people follow you? Uh, at DP Gushy is where you find me on all the social media, uh, you know, and uh, my website is uh, davidpgushy.com. There's a lot of good stuff on there. Great. All right. Well, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. We'll talk again soon. Definitely. <laughs>